0: Now let us turn together to the Old Testament Scriptures in the book of Psalms, as we read this morning the second of the 15 Psalms of Ascents, Psalm number 121, the 121st Psalm, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. This, once more, is the living and abiding Word of God. Now, last Sunday morning, I shared with you that on these coming Sundays, we would be working together through that portion of the Book of Psalms, the Psalter, known as the Songs of Ascents, Psalms 120 to 134, 15 in all of these short psalms. And we believe them to have been used by the godly Israelites as they journeyed up from various of the villages and towns and cities of Judah and Israel to worship the Lord at the three great annual feasts in the city of Jerusalem, at the Passover and at the feast of the first fruits and at the feast of tabernacles. And in a very real sense, these lovely portions of the Psalter are a series of ascending steps as we saw to fellowship with God, beginning last Sunday with Psalm 120, the cry of the thirsty soul, and ending with Psalm 134 at the very end of the series, where the serpent of God is standing in the very presence of God in the temple and is blessing the Lord day and night with the servants of God who day and night stand in the presence of the Lord himself. Now all of these psalms speak of the deep hunger and thirst for God's presence and fellowship, but the writers of them truly felt. And we are therefore finding these psalms on these Sunday mornings so applicable to ourselves that we who are Christian men and women and young people are on the pilgrim path to heaven. We need their exhortations to seek the Lord more earnestly, to ascend the different steps, to fellowship with the Lord, to find our very experiences along the pilgrim way mirrored here in this portion of the Psalter, our hopes and our fears, our sorrows and our joys, our frustrations and our rewards. And so you remember last Sunday we looked at the first of them, the cry of the thirsty soul. The man who felt like a spiritual exile in this world. Dwelling in the land of Meshek and among the tents of Kedah. A man maligned and criticized by ungodly tongues. A man who was living, as I said to you, in the midst of the organized kingdom of the carnal mind. And though he was there, he longed to be somewhere else with the people of God and in fellowship with God. And the beautiful thing, beloved, is that as we come to the second of these psalms this morning, having learned that the first step in this heavenly pilgrimage is to renounce the evil and vanity of this world and long after God in our inmost souls, we come now to the second step in this glorious pilgrimage that takes us ever near to the Lord. Where in Psalm 121, the theme before us this morning is the glorious assurance of the helpful presence of the Lord with the pilgrim on the pilgrim path so that if Psalm 120 was characterized as indeed it was by the anguished cry to God for help, Psalm 121 is now characterized with the eye of the pilgrim constantly upon the Lord who keeps him in utter safety both day and night in every circumstance through which he passes. It is, dear friends, the song of a trusting heart. And as we come to it this morning, the question that addresses you in your conscience and in your mind is this. What do you know? What do I know of this sovereign guardian care of the Lord Jehovah? Do, not, do I know anything of this? Faith in the ability of God to keep his servant in the pilgrim way. That's what the psalm is all about. A psalm of trust. And I suggest to you that there is really a twofold division of the psalm. There is first the source of the pilgrim's perseverance. In verses 1 and 2. And there is secondly the ceaseless care of the pilgrim's protector. Now let's look at these two great thoughts as they're subdivided, especially in the second one, as we look at this scripture together. First of all, there is the source of the pilgrim's perseverance in verses 1 and 2. Read these verses in your own mind with me. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Now let me say to you at once this morning that it is a pair of verses so familiar to us, to the believing heart, that we're in danger of missing the true significance of it. We need, in other words, to pause and, as it were, to take this verse apart and look at it with fresh eyes, and ask ourselves the question, why is this opening to the psalm here where it is? And to remember the purpose for which this and all these psalms in this series have been written, to lead us on to a further and higher step in our pilgrimage to a closer walk with God. So how does the psalmist achieve this in these opening verses? Well, there are three things I want you to notice. And the first is this, that he is still a man far away from the sanctuary of God in Jerusalem and from the temple. You remember the center of earthly worship, the place where God had said, I will put my name there, and where he longed to be and knew that, enlivening communion with God would be found as he worshipped the Lord in the company of God's people. But he is still very far away from it. And what the verse symbolizes, you see, when it speaks of the hills, or more properly, I think, the mountains, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, is that they symbolize Jerusalem for the pilgrim where he knew God's holy temple resides and where that full worship of the Lord is centered and for which his heart so greatly longs. So as he thinks of his own condition, you see, in Meshach and dwelling in the tents of Kedah, where he has lived too long, His whole desire is awakened as he thinks of the distant mountains symbolic of Jerusalem and the temple of worship. And he's wondering how and if ever he will be able to reach that place where the whole of his desires are set. And it's almost as though you can see him standing there as it were, in that spiritual wilderness, surrounded by the ungodly, as we saw last Sunday morning, living in the midst of the kingdom of the carnal mind, where everything is in opposition to God. And by the eye of faith, he sees the distant towers of Jerusalem, glinting perhaps in the afternoon sun. And he thinks of that place and that city that had been the center of worship for a thousand years. Remember Melchizedek had come from that place of Salem. And he longs with all his heart, he who is far away, to be near to the house of God again. Now that's the first thing, you see. But the second is this. But there is a conscious effort in this man's heart and mind to want to be there. I lift up, he says, my eyes to the hills. Or in the King James Version, I think it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And that's significant because the words express a determined, earnest longing from his troubles and difficulties and the snares that the enemy is laying for him in Psalm 120 and the wicked things that are being said about this man. He lifts his eyes, you see, from the coils of the troubles that surround him up and beyond and over all these things to the very heights themselves by a conscious effort. And it's necessary, beloved, for us to grasp this. Because without that conscious effort, we can never make that second step in our pilgrimage to closer fellowship with the Lord. This is the essential background to all that follows in Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes in spite of all that is happening to me, he says. I will look beyond the low level where I'm living in the ungodly world that surrounds me. And by an habitual stirring up of myself, I will lift my eyes to the unseen heights where I have my true home and where my real desire and all my heart is. Now you see, my dear friends, if you and I are not doing that habitually and Constantly, What happens? Gravitation pulls us down. There's not only gravitation, beloved, in the physical universe. There is gravitation in the spiritual world as well. And this fallen world will so take hold of us and so get us into the coils of all its troubles and perversities that we will come to a point where we will no longer want even to live up, lift up our eyes. It will be with us down the head and down the eyes and down the heart and down the desires. And you see, what made this man so different from all the men around him in Neshez and in the tents of Kedah was that he was a child of God and his interests were not in the things of this earth or ultimately among the sticks and straws of time, but in the high and lofty places where dwelt the great God of his people, the omniscient and omnipotent helper of the lowly pilgrim. And you see, again, I think this is why Our worship so often is so poverty-stricken. A few hurried minutes in the quiet time each day as we read the scriptures together and pray. Is that all? The time we have for the Lord? And then we expect such Christianity as that? To change the world? Here is a man whose heart was where his eyes were. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. But you see, the third thing is this, that he was suddenly, as he did so, aware of Jehovah's marvelous and omnipotent power. And the King James Version is almost certainly wrong at this point when it treats the second statement of verse 1 as an affirmative. It should be an interrogative. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Question mark. Because this man clearly realized that his help didn't come from the mountains or the hills, however uplifted and exalted they were, but from those mountains and hills only as they represented the eternity and the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of the living God. I will look, he says, at these as symbols of the help that only God can bring to me. And it's clear that he was a reasoning man, isn't it? But he was arguing with himself as he did so. And he said to himself, well, if this great God is the maker of all these things, the heaven and the earth, then there is nothing that he cannot do for me. And he saw the mountains, as it were, as a symbol of God's creative power with the signature of Almighty God stamped upon them. Have you not looked at the awesome range of mountains? And said in your heart on occasion, how great God is who has made these things. And you see the thoughts of that part of the verse leap beyond the mountains and even beyond the universe to the maker of it all. And he comes as a lowly pilgrim with his faith refreshed and renewed But here is living help. Here is primary help. Here is personal help for me. Here is loving assistance. Here is an immeasurable grace for a lowly servant of God living in an alien land. And here I will look. Now let me ask you as we leave these two verses, do you see the unseen? As he did. Or do you dwell in this world with near a glimpse of it? Because that is the secret, beloved, to all that follows in verses three through eight. Verses three through eight are simply a drawing out into daily life of the principle that he's grasped in verses one and two. If there is such a God as this watching over me, then no circumstance of mine but I can get myself into, can possibly beyond, be beyond his unslumbering care and health. And those verses simply show to us the relation of true worship to the rest of life. But what you need to grasp is that vision of the unseen things. And you know, ultimately, the sticks and straws of time are not the real things. They are shadows. They are insubstantial. The busyness of the factory, the restlessness of the office, the well-stocked storehouses of our city, men and women going to work in the morning and coming home in the evening like myriad ants to their ant nest. What is it in the end that shadows lacking substance? And the real vision that should fill the Christian soul is the vision of the heights and of the God of the heights. And only then, you see, can we begin to explore together the rich possibilities involved in that theme of the almightiness of God and the readiness of him to help the pilgrim on his way. And so, you see, we come from that vision of God to the ceaseless care of the pilgrim's protector. Now, as you look at verses 3 through 8, really it's a series of individual thoughts about how God looks after and protects his servants. And I want to explore these in three or four ways with you this morning. Now, do you notice that the first of these rich possibilities involved in this theme of God's help regards the slippery places? What is the ceaseless help of the Lord if it is not to be in the slippery places of life at the beginning of verse 3? He will not let your foot slip. Now you must be aware that in Scripture the sliding of the feet is frequently spoken of as a metaphor for misfortune. For instance, in Psalm 38, verse 16, we have the Psalmist prayer, Do not let them, that is, my enemies, exalt and gloat over me when my foot slips. Or again in Psalm 66, verse 9, he has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. And perhaps the greatest incident is in Psalm 73, where the psalmist writes as he sees with envy the prosperity of wicked men in this world, but as for me, he says, as I looked how they prospered and I suffered, as for me, my feet had almost slipped and I had nearly lost my foothold. The metaphor, very powerfully presented, of misfortune and impending disaster. And you can see, of course, that in the pilgrim way even, as we think of this psalm in terms of a pilgrimage, the roads in that time were no more than tracks and slipping and stumbling, Could be very dangerous. They were strewn with rocks and stones from recent landslides. And protection was a burning issue for every pilgrim on the way to Jerusalem. The journey was slow and hazardous, both on account of nature and of evil men. But would God allow such slippage to occur? To ask the question, dear friends, is to answer it. He watches over every step that his beloved takes. And I want to say to you this morning, are you walking with God? Is your pilgrimage to the heavenly Zion secure today? That is good. But what about tomorrow and the next day and the day after that? Do you not need some assurance that you will be enabled to stay in the way to that heavenly Zion. And this is where the promise comes in. He will not allow your foot to slide. In other words, he will prevent you from going off in another direction, which you would do if it were not for his gracious and continual help in the pilgrim way the Lord of the slippery places. But do you notice, secondly, the Lord of the unguarded hours. At the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, he who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, this is a promise, you notice, not so much for the community of Israel, but it is for the believer as well, the individual believer. And sleep is the key word, slumber, it underscoring the Lord's guardian care of his people even when they are unable to take care of themselves. And the picture might well be of the pilgrim band as it journeys up on that slow and hazardous road to Jerusalem halting under the night sky with the stars peeping out above them. There they lie in camps. And they are posted watchmen, as you must do in those times, against marauding animals and evil men. But it is not really the watchmen who ensure their security. It is the Lord of the unguarded hours who watches over them with unslumbering and unsleeping care. And surely the point is this, that we too are so vulnerable in those unguarded hours. Not just in our sleep, though you know it's true there. How easily Frightened we are in the darkness and in our sleep. The slightest noise awakes us. The slamming of a car door. The rattle of a window unexpected. intrudes into our fears. They're all enlarged, as it were, by the darkness. And in those unguarded hours, not only of the physical darkness, but of spiritual darkness, It is the Lord who comes to us and says to us, as it were, You are Israel. Go to sleep again. You are in my care. The Lord of the unguarded hours. But do you notice the third thing is this, that he will be the pilgrim shade at his right hand. At the end of verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. So not only does the Lord provide universal care for his people, but he provides particular care and personal care as well. It's so clear from the very words that are used, the word you're in verses 5 through 8, is singular. We should translate it thy. He watches over thee. The Lord is thy shade. At thy right hand it's personal and individual. He does not overlook a single defenseless suppliant. And so with ongoing confidence you see the psalmist applies what is true for the people of God generally to the individual member who has set out on that costly pilgrimage at God's call. And we may not realize it today, but in those biblical times, shade was a metaphor for protection. As the merciless sun beat down upon your head day after day, what you long for in that land as we sometimes do in Jacksonville is the shade of some tree or bush or overshadowing rock to protect us from its burning rays. And the remarkable thing you see about verse 5 is this, that the shade is at our right hand. It's very close. It's very near. And what the psalmist is seeking, I think, to tell us is this, is that while God is able to protect his people from a distance, most certainly, here he is Depicted as being so close to them that his very shadow, as it were, falls over them. He is at their right hand. Now think of that. And Jehovah himself, not his angels, not his archangels, not the blessed spirits in glory, but the Lord himself, comes down and protects the pilgrim upon his hazardous way. Now do we not need that so much, my dear friends? Are we not such very poor keepers of ourselves? How poorly we keep our possessions. Some of you have had your homes broken into in the quite recent past. All of you are having your investments eroded away by that unseen thief called inflation. How quickly we lose our friends. How poor keepers we are of our best interests. And even in the spiritual realm, how quick and fleetingly they would speed away if we were the only custodian of them. But what he tells us, you see, is this but the Lord is the one who really keeps those who are his. I think of those great days in the French Reformed Church, the days of the Huguenots in France, when they were persecuted and became a tiny remnant, harried almost out of the land by the fierceness of the oppressor's sword. And in those days of the French Huguenot Church, they raised the great motto that still characterized their standards today in the Latin words, et tenio, et teniore. I am holding on, they said. And the Lord's response, you are held, my child. And that's what took them through. And then do you notice, fourthly, the sun and moon shall not harm you, verse 6. What does this mean? Well, certainly in a physical way it spoke of the daily march and the nightly encampment of these men and women and their families, both the life being under the shadow and care of Jehovah, who would hold up their feet unwearied in the way and watch unslumbering over their repose. The sun and moon should not smite them. But I think it means more than that. You see, there is a Hebrew metaphor that speaks of the totality of life as being under the sun and under the moon. And surely what he's saying to us is that whatever may happen to us, By day or night, from morning's rise to sunset, he is present, who is the keeper of his people through it all. The blazing sun and the sinister moon, examples of many daily and nightly experiences which fill the mind with fears, rational and irrational, The Lord will take care even of these. By his constant presence, ever living and never sleeping, he will ward off the threats which beset the pilgrim's daily course. Well, there is one final thing as the Psalm closes, in many ways the most glorious thing of all. He will watch over verse seven, your life, your coming and your going, both now and forever. Yes, he keeps that as well, the psalmist says, for the pilgrim in whose heart or heart is the way to Zion. Now just think for a moment with me what that means. He will keep your life, your whole living person, says the psalmist, your immortal soul, conjoined with it. And whatever may be shorn away by losses you sustain on your pilgrim path, your possessions may go, your family may die, your friends depart by death before you. Whatever is shorn away, your immortal soul will be safe in Jehovah's care. And if that is so, what Really, do the rest matter? And it tells us that the individual life of God's people is of large account in his eyes. He keeps our lives, he keeps our souls as a safe deposit entrusted to him by faith. And much else may go, but his almighty hand closes around those who are his And no one is able to pluck them out of his omnipotent clutch. But not only so, your coming out, or your coming in and your going out, is preserved as well. The Hebrew idiom again, for the whole of life, the whole trajectory of human experience is covered. From the little helpless infant hanging on its mother's breast, to the ripe old man or woman grown gray with experience, with withering skin and weakened limbs. The whole trajectory of human experience from birth to death is taken in by that lovely phrase, you're coming in and you're going out. And the man and woman of God lives with the assurance that Jehovah goes with him wherever he goes. He may look into a future all unknown, all dim and distant. He does not even see its boundaries ahead of him. Yet however far that may extend, whatever strange conditions he may meet, Whatever possible foes and alarms may arise from its dim recesses, the keeper of Israel and of the pilgrim will be there too. And all will be well. My friend, are you there this morning? The characteristic word of this psalm repeated six times over is the word keep or kept. The powerful promise, I will be with you, is not only, dear friends, for Moses and for a Joshua, nor simply for an apostle Paul, but it passes down through this psalm to every ordinary believer, all through the realms of this alien world in which we live, through the tents of Kedah, through the land of Meshech, I will be with you. And we are assured that however difficult the way, however long the sojourn here, Jehovah goes with me too. Is that where you are this morning? Oh, my dear friends, we come as pilgrims weary of life's struggles, but our coming to the place of renewal, to the house of God, to the fellowship of God's people, to communion with Him here and in the quiet hours of our own homes, revives us with the hope of courage for the way and the promise of God's never-failing presence. Is this Psalm not common language to all of God's people in all our ventures, in all our enterprises? This is where our hearts look to. This is where our desires rest. Here will be the dawn and the sunset of our days safe in His keeping both now And forevermore, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we bless thee this morning for this great theme of Jehovah's faithfulness to his people, that they are kept by the power of God unto a salvation that is ready to be revealed. And may this great confidence and faith of the psalmist become the faith and confidence of every one of us here this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.